you know, I'm a, I'm a Peloton enthusiast. And one of the instructors often gets to say like, we don't have to work out today. We don't have to do hard things. We get to, like, we get to do hard things. And on the one hand, that's deeply cheesy. Um, but on the other, I do think it somewhat applies to this, you know, we don't have to reform the democratic party. We don't have to save democracy. We get to, what an incredible opportunity. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. I'm Nick LaPara, and this is the Let's Give a Damn podcast. On this show, I have conversations with all kinds of incredible humans that have two things in common. They all give a damn, and they're all striving to live meaningful lives. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. I hope you're doing super well, and I'm so very glad you're here. Friends, I am not exaggerating at all when I say that I haven't been this excited about releasing a podcast conversation in quite some time. And that statement has absolutely nothing to do with the amazing guests I bring on here each and every week. Those conversations pump me the hell up. But my statement has everything to do with how important and how key the work my guest is doing is for each and every one of us over the next few years. Above and beyond all the amazing work you're already doing in your communities, I think our conversation today could change some of your lives. I mean that. In fact, I hope it changes some of your lives. I hope that some of you change the path you are on in life as a result of this conversation. Now, at this point, you're probably wondering who my next guest is, aren't you? Allow me to introduce you to Amanda Littman. Amanda is the co-founder and co-executive director of Run For Something, an organization which recruits and supports young, diverse progressives running for down-ballot office. Since launching a few years ago in 2017, Run For Something has identified more than 100,000 young people who want to run. They have endorsed nearly 2,000 of those young people, and they have seen over 500 young people elected through Run For Something across 48 states, mostly women and people of color. This is amazing. Before launching Run for Something in 2017, Amanda was Hillary Clinton's email director during her 2015-2016 presidential campaign. Before that, she worked on Charlie Crist's campaign and Barack Obama's campaign. After she co-founded Run for Something, Amanda wrote an amazing book called Run for Something, A Real Talk Guide to Fixing the System Yourself. Barack Obama called this book wonderful, and Hillary Clinton said, I wish I'd had this years ago. Amanda also hosts the Run for Something podcast, which you should definitely check out. Over the years, Amanda has written for BuzzFeed, Vanity Fair, Fast Company, Women's Health, Teen Vogue, O Magazine, CNN.com, and many other outlets, and she's appeared on TV across all kinds of shows, including The Chris Hayes Show, The Rachel Maddow Show, Headline News, CBS News, Cheddar, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News. Friends, this incredible conversation is full of information, inspiration, and clear steps forward for those who want to and should run for office. And even if you're not going to run for office, this conversation is for you because you need to support those that want to run for office in the days, weeks, months, years ahead. Please pay attention 
extra attention at the end of our chat for ways you can get started in running for office in the future. And I know running for office can feel daunting and huge, but Run for Something has made it as easy as possible to do so. Before we begin, as always, a quick reminder that you can, anytime, and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love the show or hate the show, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the incredible Amanda Littman. Let's go. It's an absolute pleasure to have Amanda Littman on the Let's Give a Damn podcast today. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled um, about what you're doing, and I've learned more about your story. I did, full disclosure, I heard the conversation between you and Ezra. Um, I had heard about you and your work previously, but then it was like, I, I love listening to Ezra. He's so fucking smart, and it just makes me um, makes me a better person uh, to listen to the conversations that Ezra has on his podcast. I'm so glad you joined him there. Uh, but after I heard that conversation, I was like, my oh my, this conversation needs to happen I could, I could obviously point people to that conversation and say, go listen. There's a lot of great stuff in there. But I do think there's some, there's a few different things I want to tackle today that are just a little bit different and for the Let's Give a Damn family. So again, thanks for joining me. You're uh, real great for doing this again, because I know you're having these conversations a lot. Um, but the work you're doing at Run for Something, it's incredible. It's so needed uh, for the times that we're living in. So again, thank you for being here. Let's begin with, uh, before we get into the meat of things, let's start with some story. Let's start with some background because I am always super interested in the who, what, when, where, and why of, in this case, Amanda Littman. I always see, as people tell me their story, the things that stick out to them in their story and their history and their in their family, I always get these clues for how you ended up being who you are, doing the things that you're doing. So if I just let you loose there for a few minutes and say, tell me about your upbringing, the the people that influenced you, the things that influenced you, um, do that for a few minutes. And then I think that'll lead us into the kind of work that you're doing today. So kind of take us up to, actually take us up to the beginning of your career, actually, because I do want to point out some very, uh, some things that I see in your career that are really fascinating. So tell us about your upbringing. Um, sure. I was born and raised in Northern Virginia. Um, and like right on the edge of the suburbs where like now it's pretty blue, but when I was growing up, it was pretty Confederacy-esque. Sure. Um, <laughs> the gas station near my house used to say like Santa buys his guns here, um, which always was a weird thing for me as like a young Jewish American woman in the 90s in Northern Virginia. Um, I'm the oldest of four. I have three younger siblings. We're very close in age. So there's only four years between me and my youngest sister. Um I grew up pretty religious, um, went to Jewish day school, went to summer camp, did a, uh, a lot of my like religious and faith focused on social justice. And that was really an important part of how I understood being a Jew. Uh, went to, ended up going to public high school, um, have always been interested in politics. That's always been an interest of mine. My best friend's mom used to take us to narrow pro-choice Virginia marches and rallies. We used to knock doors. Um, I used to volunteer for Virginia Democrats. Um, my junior year of high school, I skipped a day of high school, which was very unusual for me. I was kind of like a good kid for the most part. But I went and skipped a day 
to go see this guy, Barack Obama, speak when he was doing his Students for Obama tour um, before he announced his presidential campaign. He blew my mind. I had never seen a politician speak like that. I had never seen someone who made me feel like I was part of something bigger. So decided that no matter what, I was going to try and work for him. My senior year of high school, when I was trying to figure out where to go to college, I had a family friend who was at Northwestern who was working on the Obama campaign in Chicago. I went and visited the school to see if I would like it um, and realized that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to Northwestern. <laughs> I wanted to work for Barack Obama when I was a senior, and that's what I wanted my career to be. So got into the university, um, ended up going there to study American studies, where I wrote my thesis on women running for office against other women and how that changed gender performance in TV ads. So pretty on message, even as sure. like an 18, 18, 20 year old. My senior year, I got an internship on the Obama campaign. Um, I had bounced around a little bit over those four years doing college journalism. I interned on the Hill. I interned at my local county party. Um, I was the editor-in-chief of North by Northwestern, which was the online campus journalism at Northwestern. Um, but by my senior year, I knew I wanted to do campaigns, and I was back to where my heart was, which was trying to be a part of this competitive, super-focused, short sprint to a hard-finish effort that ultimately could change whether or not people got health care and whether women got equal pay and what leadership looked like. So my senior year, I got an internship on the campaign doing online fundraising, was hired before I graduated. And that was the beginning of a very long decade, I guess, just about. <laughs> I love it. So let's go back a little bit to a couple things that you said. Uh, one was you talked about going to these pro-life or pro-life, the opposite, pro-choice rallies with your friend's mom. Um, were your parents also active politically or were you kind of getting that outside of, obviously you said uh, tied your Jewish faith. There was a lot of like social justice stuff. But politically, was you getting that from the outside or were you also getting that from inside the home? My parents were neither more or less political, I think, than anyone else who grew up in the D.C. suburbs. My dad was a Republican, <laughs> um, but like kind of a Virginia Republican, which at that point was like, you know, Mark uh, John Warner sort of not crazy. It was not crazy. It was conservative, but it was not crazy. Um, my mom was a Democrat. We read The Washington Post over like breakfast every morning. It was not unusual for me to like flip through first the style, then the Metro, then the homepage as like a middle and high schooler. But my parents weren't really political. They were just too busy. They had a, you know, a 17 year old, a 16 year old, a 15 year old and a 13 year old. There was just not time for them to be active in politics in the same way. I think that's an interesting point. We'll, we'll circle back to what you just said, but I think the reason the work you're doing is so important is because there are tens of millions of Americans that are exactly what you just said. And that's not wrong. That's not bad to be so fucking busy that you just can't think about running for office, not even just getting out there and voting or getting more involved in your community, right? This is a this is a thing that so many Americans, and not just Americans, people around the world, but we're, we're speaking in our context, is that they can't even catch their breath from their two jobs and their three kids and like paying student loans. So the idea of getting more involved in politics, let alone like running for some one of the many public offices out there, it just seems so absurd. So that that uh, 
story, I think, resonates probably with a lot of people where, yes, maybe the desire was there and, and we're obviously somewhat nominally interested in what's happening, but can I do more? No, I can't. Uh, there's just so much going on. Uh, did your Jewish faith stick with you as you grew up or is that something that you sort of lost along the way or did it just lessen or how, how do you think about your religious uh, background from then until now? Well, it's definitely formative to how I understand um, everything. You know, the one I had a teacher once who explained that the fundamental symbol of Judaism is not the Jewish star, it's the question mark. The Jews are pushed to question, to, to push on what the, the conventional wisdom is, to really both learn as much as you can and then interpret that in the way that it fits into your life. I was really lucky when I was a high schooler, I got to participate in a program through the Religious Action Center, which is the reform movement's sort of lobbying and political arm um, that did, what was it called? I forget what the program was called, the Taken. It was called the Taken, which is like to, to give or to engage with. Um, and they would do like lobbying training for young Jewish high school students. Um, and you would go pick an issue. I remember, I think we did ours on like raising the minimum wage. And then they set up meetings with people on the Hill and you would go and talk to your member of Congress. Um, that combined with spending summers at Jewish summer camp, I did the really nerdy Jewish summer camp that was like leadership training. And my like track was social justice of like understanding that as Jews, we have a responsibility to not fix the world, but to try. Like you, you got a responsibility to try. Um, that is like, I think, key to who I am as a person. <laughs> um, both the questioning uh, that, you know, just because someone says it's true doesn't necessarily mean that you should take it at face value, um, that you should question your leaders. Like huge parts of Judaism are taking what the rabbis say and going, huh, really? <laughs> and, and making sure that that it is my personal responsibility to do what I can to try and make the world a better place and to leave it better than I found it. I grew up in very conservative, uh, fundamentalist Christianity. That's my roots. Um, and it's the opposite of what you just said in that there were no questions being asked. They had figured every fucking thing out. This book that they held called the Bible, even though it is, it is, (laughs) it is chock full of contradictions and weird stuff and things that we should question. We can love this book. We can read this book and still say, yeah, that's kind of weird that, you know, you're serving a God who would tell people to go, you know, bash the heads of their enemies' children on rocks and kill kids and kill animals and just burn down cities, right? Like we should question these things. But in in the setting I grew up in, there was no questioning. And it wasn't until, I love that idea. It, it, it wasn't until, and I wish I had gotten this earlier, it wasn't until my early 30s that I even, be, I felt way more comfortable. And my life is, I still, you know, adhere to, it's a whole, it looks a lot different now, but I still adhere to my Christian faith, but it looks a whole lot different in how it, that came about because I started asking questions. That came about because I felt more comfortable saying the the way that we're living, the way that we're voting politically, the way that we're doing, the way that we're treating marginalized peoples, the ways that we're showing up or not showing up, it's all wrong. We've got to do better. We can't just take this thousands year old book and read it verbatim and say, well, this is this is what it said, so we've got to do this when it's physically killing people, hurting people, taking money away, not providing housing, not providing health care. 
Like, it, I love that idea of, um, and I've seen this so much with my Jewish friends, is there's even those that are really orthodox and really like it here, there's still so much question, there's still so much room for mystery and uncertainty and question asking. And that to me is anybody that is going to adhere to any of the big or small faiths alike, you've got to, you can grab it as hard as you want to, and you've got to leave room for the questions, for yeah. the asking of questions, because that is a healthy place to be versus like, nope, I've already got it figured out. How do you have it figured out? Well, you see this book. It was written thousands of years ago by a bunch of people uh, that didn't know each other, and it's 100% true. Like, that's just not a way to live, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think there's certainly a lot of like flavors of Judaism, the way that I experienced it growing up in reform Judaism. Like I, my, I didn't know men could be rabbis until I was like seven or eight because my synagogue only had women rabbis, um, which was pretty unusual. There was not a ton of Jews in Northern Virginia in the nineties. Um, I was maybe one of five or six in my graduating class of 800 in high school. Oh, wow. Um, so it was a very, I know that my experience and my faith is particularly unique to the setting in which I grew up in. Um, and it is something I think, like to your point, the whole premise of Judaism, the thing that you are studying deeply is a series of people arguing over what these rules mean. Like the foundation of Jewish text is argument and debate, um, which I think gives space for even, it creates a permission structure for being able to, to engage with the text in a really, um, deeper, more critical, in a good way, uh, lens. So let's, um, <laughs> where do we go from here? There's so much here, but I want to, I want to be respectful yeah. of our time. Um, let's, let's dive into, um, completely agree with everything you just said. Let's dive into the, the political side of things. Um, you mentioned growing up, you know, very interested in politics, going to rallies, being around that kind of wrestling with those ideas. I'm sure you were talking about it with your friends and different things. That's fantastic. And then you go to school and right out of school, if somebody just has to take a quick look at your LinkedIn to be like, oh, her entire career, Amanda's entire career, politics. Before we get into talking about these specific roles and how they led you to run for something, was there ever a time when you were like, well, maybe I'll, you know, attack it a different, maybe I'll go this route uh, a career wise. Or was it always like, no, it's politics for me, whether it's as a writer or as a director or whatever it is, it's politics for me. Was there ever that wavering or, or are you in this for the long haul? I never even considered something that wasn't political. I thought maybe like inside government, but I realized that wasn't for me, I thought maybe journalism. I did a summer internship at the American Prospect. I did an internship at Ms. Magazine, um, which again, is two different very ways of approaching it and realized that writing about what was happening was interesting. And I, I consider myself a writer. I found it to be very engaging, um, but I got really frustrated because I wanted to change it. <laughs> the things we were writing about made me mad. Um, and so ultimately when it came time for my senior year to really think about like the mechanics of how we got different leaders who then made different decisions, which led to different outcomes. Campaigns was the obvious place. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, so let's be clear here as we get into this, you are much smarter than me, <laughs> probably in general, but definitely <laughs> when it comes to uh, politics. Like I, again, I, I grew up in a house that I I'm probably a more common story, right? Which is why your work is so important where, you know, so I'm one of 12 kids. Mm. Uh, 
my parents have yeah 12 kids they one at a time no twins 12 different pregnancies yeah. not not catholic just insane and mm-hmm. and and we grew up my dad is an immigrant and when i was young we moved back to guatemala for 10 years and i didn't come back till i was 20 so politics in in guatemalan politics is a shit show i mean it's just it's just bribes yeah. and it's just bad it's it's <laughs> there's so much craziness there um, and I don't, I don't know how it is now, but when I was growing up, it was c- kind of insane. So, um, anyway, it wasn't until my mid to late twenties that I really was like, oh, I think I'm going to be back in the U S I moved back in my early twenties. And I was like, I think I'm going to be here for the long term, even though I'm, this doesn't feel like home and it, and I don't really want to be here. And it's proved true. I'm here, you know, a decade plus later, um, I was like, oh, I need to get more involved in politics. But I still, there are so much that I don't understand. And I want to go through this conversation talking more about hope yeah. and 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 what can, what is happening, what should be happening, what can happen versus just wallowing in despair. Because I know you and I could sit here for the next two, three, four hours and just talk about how heavy everything feels and not just how it feels, how it kind of is and how we could lose some very vital things in our country and in this democracy if we don't work hard. Um, but I don't want to focus there. That's where I lean a lot of times. I am working very hard at on being hopeful because, you know, whining on social media, even if it's about important things, does nothing. It does nothing. I've tried it for years. I've ha- tried to have conversations civilly and not so civilly, and it just never moves the needle. What does move the needle is trying to focus on hope, still attacking these problems, and just getting to work instead of talking about it, right? Um, and so I want to, I just want to kind of cover this conversation in hope rather than despair, because I do believe that if you, and run for something are successful, it could fundamentally change the, the 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 makeup of this country in you know for for the better. Like this needs to happen. This work needs to grow and move forward. Um, so I just wanted to say that on right right out the gate that I could easily send us off a cliff here uh, and, and into despair, and I don't want to do that. So your career, again, we've talked about it. You came out of college, uh, out of university, and you started working for Obama for America and then uh, organizing for action uh, as a writer for Obama, then email director, Charlie Crist for governor, digital create director. And then, so these are all uh, important positions that you helped you know, make happen and move forward. And then a really interesting one that I want to spend a couple minutes on, you worked uh, with Hillary Clinton, um, who for better or for worse, should have been president in 2016. And I wish that would have happened. And I can still remember very vividly waking up um, on that very terrible morning because we went to bed like many people did because it was just so late and woke up and would just, I mean, I literally remember it. Uh, Just my wife rolled over and she was like, what happened? And my eyes said it all. It was just, that was a very hard morning, right? Tell me about that year, uh, year plus working with uh, Hillary for America, and what did you do there? And then, because that will launch us into the circumstances that led you to found, uh, you know, run for something. So talk about that year. It's almost two years. Um, I started 
I started working for Secretary Clinton's campaign before the campaign even began. Um, in like January, February of 2015, we started having conversations about what a campaign might look like. Um, I officially joined about two weeks before we launched, um, as is legally allowed. Um, but I'd been part of those conversations from the start about, especially in the bucket where I work, which was digital strategy, um, in my particular specialty, which was email. So online fundraising, volunteer recruitment, you know, direct marketing, that kind of thing, but particularly online fundraising, what could it look like? Um, we launched that campaign in April, 2015 and basically worked every day for the next 18 months. Um, the first vacation I took was, I think I went for like three or four days in November, 2015. And then again for two days in March, 2016. And then I wow. can tell you that like basically from memory tells you how rare it was. Um, my team was in the office. We started doing seven days a week. Ooh. And like after Thanksgiving of 2015 and basically kept that for the next year. Um, we were there from eight in the morning until about 11 to 11 PM, 2 AM, depending on the evening. I had the best staff I managed. Ultimately my team was about 19 people, um, part of the larger digital department. If you ever got an email from Hillary Clinton or an email from George Clooney or Robbie Mook or any of the other members of the staff, that was my team who helped write and shepherd and send and test and optimize and ultimately raise more than $180 million. Um, more than half of what we raised online came through email. We won the primary, you may recall. <laughs> uh, we then went, lost the general. Election night was one of the worst nights of my entire life. And that includes like my grandma's funeral. <laughs> um, I was there at the Javits Center in the behind the holding tank where we had like the comms and digital staff because we had prepared like what, what the website was going to look like when she won, what the email we were going to send, what the tweet be, what would like the preparation for the transition website. I didn't have a job lined up for after election day. You know, some people had already had conversations about going into the White House or transition team, or at the very least, like laid the groundwork. I didn't know what I wanted. Mostly I was ready for a break after <laughs> two years of working nonstop. Um, I remember at about two or three in the morning, I don't know, could time check all of this, but John Podesta and Jen Palmieri came behind and said, we don't know what's going to happen. We need you to come back to the office tomorrow morning. We're going to keep fighting until every vote is counted. The secretary is not going to speak tonight. Podesta went out and spoke to the hall. You all remember that was on TV late that night or early in that morning. And then as we were leaving, my team was one of the last folks to leave Javits Center. Um, all of the, the guests and the, the folks who were coming to celebrate had already left. They were preparing to, to close it down. We saw someone, I think it was probably Maggie Haberman, but again, history can correct me here, um, tweet that they, Hillary had called Trump to concede. And that was how we found out that it was over. And I remember walking out of the Javits Center, for those who are not familiar with New York geography, it's like not that far from Trump Tower. It's like sort of the same general vicinity and the streets were mostly shut down. So it was hard to get a cab to go home because I lived out in Brooklyn. Um, and my friend and I walked out and you could see all these people walking around the area with their Make America Great Again hats. And you, it was terrifying because we're wearing like, 
I haven't slept in six months <laughs> feeling like crap. We get into a car, finally kind of cab to go home and we drop my friend off in her neighborhood and I go a little further out. And at one point I have to ask the yellow cabbie to, to pull over because I'm so sick to my stomach. I need to throw up. So I puke outside a cabin crown heights, looks <laughs> like a drunk college kid. I get home, don't sleep because I'm starting to get emails already from my bosses and my boss's bosses about what we're going to have to do the next day. The next day, I remember getting on the subway and it felt like going to a funeral. They told us to show up at the hotel where she'd be giving her concession speech. Um, people were so tired and so defeated, both literally, figuratively, metaphysically. I remember sitting in, I was maybe the third or fourth row for her concession speech. The photos on my phone from that pop up on like my featured photos from I from Apple, and it's always so disorienting. And when she gave her concession speech, she was the only person in the room not weeping. Because it wasn't just what was going to happen to the country, because we knew we'd have gotten pep talks for the last year and a half that if we didn't work as hard as we possibly could, if we didn't give everything we could, the worst possible things could happen. They would ban Muslims from entering the country. Immigrants would be turned away at the border. Women would be subjugated. Like LGBTQ people would experience deep, deep discrimination. You know, we would see the rise of white supremacy violence. Nazis would come to the streets. Like these were the pep talks we got on the campaign to keep us working harder. And if anything, they weren't hyperbolic enough. No, every single one of the things you just mentioned and more happened. And when I think about those experiences, one of those, the things that come back to me is like, it wasn't just all of that. It wasn't just the person that we believed in so deep. Like I believe that Hillary Clinton would have been an amazing president. I also believe separately that had Republicans held House and Senate, she wouldn't have been president for that long. But as my husband now likes to remind me like, oh, Tim Kaine would have really had to deal with that pandemic. Um, <laughs> but I think that there is, it was more than just like the societal feeling of failure. It was I had one goal for the last two years and I personally, we personally failed. We failed. And I would go get my hair cut the next day or a couple of days later and the woman would say, thank you for what you did. And I'd be like, I'm so sorry that we let you down. Mm. So it sucked. It was terrible. Yeah. I mean, just hearing you talk about it and you were obviously, I was, I was watching it through my phone. You were there in real time. I mean, I, I can't, I, I would be lying if I didn't, if I didn't admit that my stomach is a little bit in knots, just reliving that. I, I, I recently, I think it was last week, I rewatched uh, Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 11.9 and the one that was made in, what was it, 2019 or 20, yeah, 2019. Anyway, um, and a, a probably 10, 15 minutes of it is that transition and how everybody was calling it for uh, Hillary Clinton. And it just... It was such an absurd night. It wasn't It wasn't supposed to be close. There's no reason that in Amer in the United States of America, in the year of our Lord 2016, with all the progress that we've made, with all the changes that we've made, that millions of people would have voted to hire a sexual predator, uh, failed businessman. Um, I, I joked about this with my wife, and I'm not... I'm not I'm not talking about, um, this is not to attack who he is necessarily and how he looks, but you know, there's these certain 
world leaders where you're like, you look at them, you know, uh, Emmanuel Macron or uh, uh, Justin Trudeau, where you're like, oh, I can see the charm. Like these, these guys are like really like good looking and charming and like you want to follow them. And then you look at Donald Trump and you're like, it's not, it's nothing about who he is or what he's done would make him remotely qualified to run a country. And, and then that happened again, regardless of what people and people have lots of opinions about secretary Clinton, um, regardless of how one feels about that, her breadth of knowledge and experience alone made her vastly more qualified for the job. Right. And again, I don't want to, we don't need to keep talking about that, but yeah, it's, it was a crazy time. So after that happened, uh, essentially, and you've already said you didn't know if you wanted to get into the White House or what happened after that. So you were overnight jobless, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, walk us through uh, the next season. Again, is a really hard time. Um, take us on the journey because this is important. Lots of people that listen to this podcast have gone through horrible things. And we're going to go through horrible things, uh, whether it's deaths of of jobs or careers or f- deaths of family members or bad things happen. That is part of life. We can't avoid that. And I don't think we should seek to avoid it because it is just part of the human experience. But I think what counts is what we do during and after that. How do we move forward? How do we successfully not forget about what happened, but overcome it and move forward in life. So this is an important season for you. You could choose a different career. You could go get a corporate job. You're vastly qualified for a many six figures job at any company in New York, right? And then you choose to uh, start this organization run for something. How did that happen? Because I think it's a very interesting story. And with whom did you do it? Okay, so we get to election day, post-election day. In the mix of all of this, I'm going through just a very messy breakup. So personally, professionally, everything it's is a bad time. It's just bad. It's bad. I am admittedly someone who likes to drown my feelings in work. That makes me well suited to campaign life and is also why I have a lot of therapy, therapy bills. I get a Facebook message from someone I went to college with. Hey, Amanda, I'm a public school teacher in Chicago. If Trump can be president, seems like anybody can do this. You've been working in politics for a while. You know this world. What do I do? And at the same time, I'm getting messages on Twitter and over email from people who are asking similar questions like, hey, if I'm going to run, what do I do? So I reached out to a whole bunch of folks with the realization that I don't have an answer to this question. Like I reach out to a friend who works at Emily's List and say, hey, can I send some of the women towards you all? Like, but like, where, where do these young people go? Right after Thanksgiving of 2016, uh, me and seven of my former coworkers, who are close friends, go on a vacation, a very depressing vacation, because we are all sad. We go to Costa Rica for, I don't know, a week. And I am on this trip reading, um, because I like to touch the bruise, a book about the founding of Emily's List by Ellen Malcolm, who was the founder of the organization which helps pro-choice Democratic women run for office and win. And the book is about leading up to electing the first woman president. It came out in 2016, obviously before the election. And as I'm reading this book, I have the realization we could start an organization kind of like Emily's List, but a little bit different in focus, but like similar sort of philosophy, which is that the people who weren't previously seen as leaders need an entry point and need a champion. And we could, like, I could do this. How hard could it be? 
So I start talking with my friends on this vacation, my former colleagues about this and like shooting the shit about it, trying to figure out, is this the right idea? I send an email to, I don't know, a couple dozen of people I know worked in politics to ask, hey, here is what I'm thinking. Tell me why this is stupid. Just tell me why this is dumb. Because obviously this feels very obvious to me. So surely someone has tried this. One of those folks connects me to her husband, um, an operative named Ross Morales Ricardo. And Ross has been working campaigns for about 15 years on a range of school board, presidential, labor, super PAC, you know, you name it, he's done it. Because Ross has been thinking about something like this too, you guys should talk. So when I get home from my trip, Ross and I get on the phone and then we start G-chatting and then we start talking and talking and talking. And we write a plan and we build a website. And then on New Year's Eve, I go on a little like impulse trip to Chicago to see a friend and I dislocate my knee, which I've done many times over and spend New Year's Eve in the emergency room and then come home and literally can't get off my couch for the next three weeks because I have a giant knee brace on, which means I have a lot of time to sit and think and write and plan and jump on the phone and dedicate my energy to this thing. So Ross and I launch run for something on Trump's inauguration day. I had been sending out resumes for other jobs like publishing online marketing and J Crew and that kind of thing. Ross was managing a congressional race in California. And we just, we were like, oh, cool. This will be a hobby we do on weekends. Like it'll make us feel good while we do other stuff. It, it feels meaningful. We have a plan here. You know, maybe someone will give us some money for it. Maybe not. It blows up. We get a thousand people who sign up in the first week. Wow. All of a sudden, my inbox is flooded. <laughs> I'm by myself trying to figure out how do I build a thing that can take in the interest of all these people who want to run, that can create a space for all the people who want to help them, and that can make this happen at scale while staying true to the values that Ross and I articulated out in our strategic plan that we are going to invest in people, not geography, that we're not going to prejudge who could be a viable candidate, that we're going to try and blow open the doors to the candidate recruitment process, knowing that if you get better can better candidates at the beginning, the campaigns themselves are so much easier and the staff are more excited and the volunteers are more energized. And then the leadership and the governing is better. The candidates are the ingredients and the meal will taste better if the ingredients are better. And that was the beginning of Run for Something. <laughs> Me on my couch and Ross at his computer in California at nights between his campaign hours, just trying to build a thing that we believed in. I, I love that story because it's it's also the story of let's give a damn. I came out of 15 years in the nonprofit space and I was almost burnt out. I was at the I was at the 98 yard line and I didn't want to be burnt out because I do believe that nonprofit work is important. It's not the only way to give a damn, but it is important. And so I left that, and it's again, it's on a smaller scale than what you were dealing with, losing you know one of the most important elections in the history of this country. But, but it came from the same place where it was like I had an opportunity to, uh, you know, take my expertise and go make money elsewhere, start a whatever, a startup, something, something or other. And I was like, no, I think, I think helping people really figure out how. And honestly, there's some there's some parallels in what we're trying to do in that. You're taking this big idea that seems so unattainable and you are uh, simplifying it and help people, helping people get going. That's what we're doing here as well. It's like the idea of uh, changing the world is so big. And I'm like, yo, you don't have to change the world. You talked about it earlier. I always tell people this. Your job is not to change the world. That's fucking impossible. No mm -hmm. one person or million people can do that. Your job is to change your world. You've got you know influence over certain people, places, and things. Like start there and see where it goes. 
and so um, I, I love I love the beginnings of that, and I also love that sometimes life hands us dislocated knees where it's like now you're confined to a couch. Like, get to work, do something, right? And I'm glad you answered the call versus, like, you know, binge-watching a bunch of TV shows for three weeks. Maybe did a little bit of that. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was an important time where you got to, like, dedicate uh, this, you know, you had this dedicated three weeks to really get this thing uh, going. How big – so there's a lot of – most people can name a few political positions. This is an important point to make. You know, everybody knows uh, – that, you know, we've got to vote every four years for the president, which which it's insane that we still can't get tens of millions of people to do that. Right. Which makes voting for all the other positions that people didn't even know exist even, you know, worse off. But we've, we know they know the president. They know, you know, Congress, 100 senators, 435 House of Rep. Like they know these things. They, they, they may know the name of their governor and maybe they know the name of their mayor. That's that's as much as most people know. They don't know this, you know, city councils, you know, school board, um, all these different positions that are elected positions, and they don't know that they have a a role as a citizen of X, Y, or Z community to participate in that. So how big of a pool are we talking about? Because again, people are thinking, man, I could never be a senator. I could never be a congressman, congresswoman. And it's like, well, fine, maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's not your role. But what are we talking about? How big is the pool? And then we'll talk about some of the the weirdest and, and most crazy positions in that pool that people don't even know exist that might be the next one for them. Okay, so there are 435 members of Congress in the House, 100 United States senators, a president, a vice president. Then there's 50 governors. Most states have lieutenant governors. Most states have attorney generals. That gets us to, let's say generously, a little under 1,000. There are 500,000 elected officials in the United States. Say that again. So a, 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 a thousand are what most people could probably wrap their head around. Keep going. Yeah. Maybe generously, maybe mayors. There are half a million elected offices in the United States. The, the scale of the, the roles in which you can have a say in who holds them is so much bigger than I think people realize. We you know, whether or not we should elect some of these positions is sort of secondary to the point here. Right now, we elect mayors, school board members, in many places, library boards, coroners, sheriffs, uh, mosquito districts, community college boards, university boards in some places, uh, attorneys and prosecutors and DAs, um, state house, state senate, uh, County executives, boards of supervisors, supervisors of elections, land commissioners, tax assessors, agricultural commissioners, railroad commissioners, judges, justices of the peace. It is sort of when you start to like really dig into it, incredible in many ways how much power the people have people being us, to determine who leads us in any number of ways. I think it's incredibly beautiful. It is also incredibly complicated. And I want people to really understand this. The reason that it's hard is because they don't want you to understand it. Like that is a feature, not a bug of the system. It is meant to keep, quote unquote, normal, real people out. It is meant to keep us collectively from understanding how it works so that those in charge at least historically, have been able to use the system to their benefit. One of the things that Run for Something is trying to do is blow open those doors. 
and to, where we can, demystify and democratize access to the information about how these things work and who holds these positions and how a real person could so that the gatekeepers of your no longer have the kind of control they did. Yeah, this is this is an important point is that a an actual built in comes, you know, when you take the packaging off of the United States, it's in there. They didn't you don't have to add it aftermarket. It's in there. One of the features is that it is fucking hard to do and they don't mm-hmm. want you to figure it out. So that um you know, you you, you said the leaders of your like these are mostly you know, white, wealthy people in power. That's just who they are. We're not picking on white people or wealthy people right now. I'm just saying that's who they are. People that come with power. Most people aren't, most Americans aren't that are wealthy, didn't build that wealth on their own. It got passed down. It's this perpetual cycle. It just keeps going. And until we do our part to figure out this system that is purposefully trying to get us to not figure it out, we can't viably change uh, a lot of the stuff that were happening. And again, it's important that people that are listening right now aspire to become congressmen, congresswomen, senators, you know, whatever. You maybe you're the next fucking president. But it's even more important, I think, for people that live in Paducah, Kentucky, in Cincinnati, Ohio, and Bend, Oregon, to look in their immediate vicinity and say, because because if, okay, for half a million, there's 350 million Americans, one out of every, what is that, 700 people? Could be an elected official. Is that right? I'm not a math expert, but yeah. I think it's around there. Yeah. Yeah. So we're we're talking about one every few hundred Americans is holding a political position. I couldn't name many of the people that are doing – I know a lot of people, and I don't know that many people that are doing these things. And so – and again, I think that's part of of the system. So how does – if somebody raises their hand today, they're listening, and they say, Amanda, I'm in. I've felt this tug. I want to get going. Run for something sounds amazing. Walk me through what what could theoretically – happen if they because again up until run for something and a few other groups doing this and up before run for something pops up in 2017 people have the desire but where do they go how do they even start like it just seems so big and so much and you're talking about you said mosquito this and like railroad commissioner like there are so many positions that and again some have more sway on what happens in a community or not but they're all you know important positions um, for the most part. Um, so how, if somebody came to you and said, Hey, I'm in, how would it work for them moving forward, joining, uh, you know, run for something? So they would sign up at runforwhat.net, And what you can do there is enter your address, a little bit about yourself. And we will show you all the offices, the local ones that are available to you to run for in 2022. And we get new data on this every year. So, you know, later this year, we'll have the 2023 information. Um, but it will show you everything that's on the ballot for you in 2022. And in many states, it's not too late to get on the ballot for 2022. A couple states, the filing deadlines have passed, but it's not too late. You will then join a conference call where we'll answer all the basic questions you might have about running for office. How much does it cost? How do I decide what office to run for? What if I can't win? What if I do win? Then you'll have a one-on-one with one of our volunteers. And in those conversations, our volunteers will learn a little bit more about you, make sure that we know what kind of information you need, where you are in this journey, and also answer the basic questions you have. We train all of our volunteers. You will then be available or have access to a whole bunch of materials in the Run for Something pipeline. One, we have guides on how to get on the ballot in all 50 states. We've worked through with county offices. We've found all the county like candidate guides, and we will tell you the unwritten rules. You know, they're going to say you need 1,500 signatures. You actually need 3,000, stuff like that. We have materials on how to set up a campaign plan, 
how to write a budget, which order of things you need to do in order to do so. Like, okay, to file to get on the office, you might need a $100 filing fee. That filing fee needs to come from your campaign bank account. You can't open a bank campaign bank account until you have an address. You can't open a PO box until you have a campaign. You can't have a campaign until you have the filing like information. You know, the things that feel like stupid and hard because it like dumb hard. Again, that's a structural intention to keep you out. And we have people who've gone through this who can walk you through every step of the process. You will then be able to access our resources, our partners' resources, our network and community. We have mentors across the country who will help you one-on-one for free with whatever question you have coming up. And then once you're on the ballot, you can apply for our endorsement. And once you're endorsed, which we do about 50% of the folks who apply get endorsed, um, we do work with people who meet a particular community definition. So for us, that's folks 40 years old and younger. We're trying to work with young people in a particular stage of life. That's not to say older folks shouldn't also run. You should. We just might not be the right group for you. We're working with progressives who share our values. Um, There's a lot of different ways you can be a progressive and a lot of different ways that looks. You know, a city council in New York City is tackling a very different issue than a school board in Kansas City. There's a but the values at the core are the same. We're looking for people who are running for the first or second time. And we're looking for people who are running strong grassroots driven campaigns. So talking to voters about the issues they care about in a way that is authentic and meaningful to that community. Endorsed candidates get support from our regional directors. They get money in some places, they get volunteers in some places, they get connected to folks we've worked with in previous cycles who are in similar life stages. So like the college student in 2020 will uh, mentor the college student running in 2022. And those are the folks we track through to election day. So our candidate pipeline at this point is more than 105,000 young people all across the country, wild. We have endorsed more than 1,800, although we have a new class coming out uh, on February 16th, so more to come. And we've helped elect through the 2021 cycle 637 young people across 48 states, 55% women, 56% people of color, 21% LGBTQIA+, um, and they're amazing. They're real people. They're teachers and artists and nurses and parents and refugees and caretakers and veterans and people with disabilities and introverts and extroverts and everything in between. And they are doing real stuff to make people's lives better. I love those numbers. Those statistics are really amazing. And obviously we, you know, they continue to evolve and get better, but that's, that's, those are incredible numbers. I I don't want to give anybody the illusion that running for office is this like sexy, you know, easy thing to do. Like, I am charismatic. People are going to love me. Let's do this thing. Um, how hard is it? Are, are, are there, I, I imagine that lots of the people that are running for office through run for something also have to keep their, I mean, maybe it's most, I don't know, also have to keep their jobs. Right. And they, they, you can't like quit your job and go do this full time because you're not making that much via f- fundraising. So I do, I do want to give people like, what does that look like? Uh, for a lot of these young people out here, uh, do, do, do most of them or all of them have to keep their jobs for a, a while or are some of them able to quit? I just want to give people a realistic picture of what to expect if they jump into this. Or or maybe they say, that's not for me, but I know young candidates that are running in my area. I need to do more to support them because of what you're about to share with us. 99% of the candidates we work with, in fact, I can't think of any off the top of my head are not full-time candidates. They have a nine to five or a nine to nine or a, you know, midnight to 5am job. 
they work full-time or part-time or whatever it is, their circumstances. And then they campaign outside of those hours. And I, Ross and I, my co-founder and I often say this, like we are here to open the door to people. We are here to ask them. We are not here to convince them. As someone you have to convince or beg or plead to run for office is not going to be a good candidate because it is miserable running. Like, I don't ever want to bullshit anyone. Running for office sucks. It is hard. It is a sacrifice for yourself, for your family, for your loved ones, maybe for your job. It is takes up uh, financial resources. Now, obviously, you're not self-funding your campaign. You're asking people um, for money. But even that is a <laughs> can take a toll on your self-esteem and your dignity. You're putting your reputation on the line. You are possibly changing the entire trajectory of your life. And... If you care about solving a problem, if you care about your community, it is one of the most meaningful things you can ever do. You know, I got to host the Run for Something podcast for a while. And one of my favorite conversations, which I talked about this on the Ezra Klein podcast, but it's it's stuck with me. So I, I bring it up a lot. Um, I got to talk to three trans women who'd run for office and won. One of them, Senator Sarah McBride from Delaware, explained to me how when she was running for office and the other trans woman, Representative Brianna Titone and Delegate Danica Rome said similarly, like knocking doors as a trans woman is very, can be very scary. Like your safety is on the line. You might be the first or only trans person this person's ever met. Like you don't know how they're going to respond. It's very scary. And she said, if you want to fall in love with your community, run for office. Mm. I think that's so beautiful and powerful and the way in which you get to know your neighbors and you get to see the things they care about and understand the like the flavors of the complexity of their lives and you get to do something about it. So like you get to have have a conversation with someone about how mad they are about the schools in their neighborhood or the the way that the roads are paved or the restaurants down the street. And then you get to go to a city council or state legislative meeting or hearing and do something. You get to actually take action on the thing that frustrates you. Like what a beautiful and (laughs) deeply efficient way of solving your own problem. I just, I think that's, it's so hard and it is such a journey of personal and professional development and I have yet to meet a candidate who ran for office, win or lose, who says, I wish I hadn't done that. Mm, that's an important That's an important way to conclude answering that question is that it's super fucking hard. It is also a beautiful way to fall in, in love with your community. And that right there, even though 99% of them or, or you said, I don't know one that doesn't have a full-time job as well, or at least a job concluding all of that because that to me is again we don't run away from hard things in life if you run away from hard things in life you're going to have a really hard time because life is hard i have we have three kids it is super hard and then there are those moments which happen multiple times a day where it's like oh my god this is why it's all worth it all those sleepless nights there my 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 children who are seven eight and nine they're already out eating me like my grocery bill is insane every single week but all of it, all of it, you have these moments where you're just reminding, you're like, oh my God, that's why this is so important to invest in these children and to raise them to be damn givers. That's a great way to wrap up that whole thing is I've never met one of them that doesn't that that regrets it. They all think, okay, despite all the hardships, despite I, I lost, still don't regret it. 
that was an insane part of my life, and I love it, and um, I don't regret that. That's a that's really huge. That's super helpful. Name one or two uh, local or more local offices that people might not think are really important, but are. Because this, again, as people think about, they might know a few. City council. Everybody knows about city council. They don't know what their city council men and women's names are, but they know that it exists. Maybe it's that. But like, what are some really important positions that people could, that don't know are really influential in their community, but are? Okay. So it's always worth caveating. All of this depends on where you live. So much of this is variable, both even like between states, within states, within counties, between counties and within cities. So not every position exists in every community. Not all of them are elected versus appointed. It is a mess. So mileage may vary. And I'm obsessed with library boards. I think library boards are so interesting. Um, one of my favorite folks we've worked with is Katie Clark out in Altadena, California. She's a library board member there. Um, and she like really convinced me of this. I like, I'm, I'm a prolific reader. I love books. I love libraries. But she really tried to explain to me at this one point, libraries are where people go to understand a sense of place. They are the keeper of the memory of the community. They are often the historical center. They are the people, the place where you bring your toddler to go for reading class, like, you know, reading hour. They're the place where people who don't have homes maybe go to use a computer to apply for a job. They're the place where folks looking for English language classes might go or to study up for a citizenship exam. They are the place you go to deepen your engagement. They, they show you what your community thinks is important to know by the books that are on the, the shelves. They're a place you can often rent musical instruments from libraries. You can, you can get tools from libraries. They are the place that holds a sense of collective identity. And the people that we elect to them, and in many places they are elected, either at the county level or the town level or maybe the city level, in some places they're appointed. Those are the ones who determine like what that identity is. So I am just, and I think we are seeing this now with the other side putting a lot of effort behind, you know, book bans and taking books off the shelves and changing what this, the place, sense of place is because it, it disrupts their idea of the mythology of America or the mythology of a community. Who we elect to a library board determines the kind of community that, that we imagine ourselves to be. So library boards. And I think school boards are also a really important part of this. And we can have a whole, I could do hours and hours of why school boards matter because you know the way that you determine the whether a place is good or not is how good the schools are. And also that is like deeply correlated to property taxes, which is income, you know, it's a whole messy system of class and race and gender. And, you know, school boards are one of the few levels of offices that are mostly women. It's because we undervalue, <laughs> uh, you know, child care and care work as a, as a women's role. It, it is a mess, which is a long way of saying school boards also an important part of this. The other office that I am finding also deeply interesting right now is coroner. About 1,300 counties in the United States elect coroners, um, and particularly related to two sort of buckets of issues, the first being um, criminal justice. The way that a death is determined, like the cause of death has a direct relationship to the way in which the criminal justice system treats it. So you know, think about like someone who is killed by a police officer. The way that the coroner and the medical examiner's office determines that will determine how it is understood by the criminal justice system. We've also seen throughout the pandemic uh, in deeper red counties, coroners have refused to put COVID as the cause of death, which then leads to undercounting of death statistics. 
Um, we worked with a coroner candidate in Colorado a couple of years ago, whose primary issue was ensuring that trans people were not misgendered on their death certificates, which has a direct relationship to how we count um, trans folks, both homicide and suicide, which again is a place where if the numbers are not right, the policies that come next are also not right or not commensurate to the problem. So I think it is uh, like a really interesting position that most people don't think about that has some real, real world consequences. I obviously would have chosen library board and school boards as well. We are in love with the library for all the reasons you mentioned. My kids, I think there's pretty much most days if we were to say, hey, we're going to see this Broadway show or we're going to the library, same level of excitement. Like, mm-hmm. they love going to the library. We always come back. I mean, we literally, t- every time we go to the library, we take four tote bags, and they come back full. And we still buy a lot of books as well for our home, but, like, libraries are so, 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 so good for so many reasons. And you mentioned things like musical instruments. I know, like, I've heard people of, like, the renting, like, uh, sewing machines and appliances, mm-hmm. like blenders from, you know, borrowing them from the library. So libraries are incredible. School boards as well. And maybe... I would love to dig more into the whole school board thing because that that to me is fascinating. Uh, like for gentrification and um, yeah, when people, I mean, we are thinking, we live in Harlem. I love Harlem. I think we want to yeah. stay here. But also as you're thinking about like, I mean, literally as we're thinking about our lease is coming up soon, do we stay here? We go to the Upper West Side. Where do we go? And the first thing we talk about is the schools. So great point there. And maybe we do that another time. The corner one, man, you just hit me in the face with that. That is so important. Like, so important. It seems like, you know, the corner's like the guy you don't talk about. But as we continue to deal with police brutality and all issues related to amazing trans people, like, yeah, that's an important... I literally did not expect that. When you start, I was like, wait, corner, where's she going to go with this? It's so incredibly important to have somebody who gives a damn, somebody who is going to do the thorough work of making sure that this is done. I mean, this is a human person that has passed for any number of reasons. Getting that right can change the trajectory of someone's career if they need to lose it or whatever. Conversations that are happening publicly about this person, that is so fascinating that somebody that holds the position of coroner could have so much power without ever saying a word. They're just reporting, doing their job, but that could change the trajectory of a conversation in society. Well, and think about it, like on the good the good side, the only time you as a, as, as a person are gonna hear from a coroner is probably in the worst moments of your entire life. Like when you are hearing about a loved one's death or yeah. experiencing like grief and trauma, you know, I got to talk to Sophia Garcia Jackson, who was elected coroner in Chester, Pennsylvania. Um, we worked with her last cycle. And she was talking about like the sacred duty of being there for someone in a moment of grief. And like, how do you hold their sadness and still go about your day-to-day job? Like, what does that mean? And why does it matter to have someone who is present in the office every day and is like available and reachable and accessible? It just, you know, we could go through this for any number of these positions, for the justice of the peace that is, you know, helping navigate probate wills or land ownership or marriages or the county clerks. And we've seen this like county clerks refuse to um, ordain or certify gay marriages. So this in a lot of red counties over the last couple of years um, or judges who oversee the child and um in like adolescent court systems who have a very skewed point of what the 
the responsibility of the state is for these kids going through these systems. Um, or mayors who are there for business developers and not for people. Or even like we worked with a person running for American River Flood Control District trustee. And this person was a, uh, had a master's degree in water conservation and ecology and science. And the person they were running against, the incumbent, was a business developer who'd been using their role on the, um, the board of trustees to specifically say fudge environmental reports to ensure that the development that they were doing was more beneficial to their bottom line. Like the, each of these positions touches some part of your life that once you start to see it will, will stun you. And you know, one of the ways I know this is true is because when you watch TV through this lens, you start to see many, many TV shows. Like I, my husband and I were joking, like Veronica Mars is a TV about local politics. Jane the Virgin is a TV, is a show about local politics. Um, what else were we watching? Like Gilmore Girls is a show about local politics. Like in any number of these shows, you start to see the way in which, oh, they're going to the town hall meeting or their interaction with the city council directly affects their quality of life and the narrative of the show. Like it's there, it's present. And you start to see it and then you can't unsee it. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Watch, I mean, all three shows that you just mentioned, I'm like, oh yeah, I th- those components automatically jumped out of me. Mostly Gilmore Girls. We rewatched it uh, a little while ago, and yeah, there's always talk of in that little community. There's so many things that are happening that are dependent on these local officials that are uh, elected. I want to hit one or two more things before we wrap up. You've been so gracious with your time. I want to leave the realm of run for something right now, talking about it directly. Everybody if they're not inspired to at least like support check out or run themselves at this point, they need to get their heart checked. But let's talk about just politics in general right now, because I think a lot of people, it, it's a hard time. It's a hard time. I don't put my, you know, faith and trust in Lord and savior Joe Biden. Um, but I do, I, I've never pushed a vote button more heartily than I did (laughs) in November of 2020. And I have supported this this uh, 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 this administration, and I love so many things that are happening, and I'm disappointed in other things that are happening, and it's a whole mixed bag, right? Which would have been the same, honestly, with Hillary Clinton and any other person. Like, these people aren't perfect. The people they hire to help them do things aren't perfect. There's going to be mess-ups. There's going to be things that they just simply – maybe they promised they were going to do that they just simply cannot do, right, because of, you know, X, Y, or Z reasons. So I'm not – I'm not shitting on Joe Biden or the Democratic Party, but I am saying that out of these two parties, there's one that clearly cares about people more. There's one that clearly wants the good of the most amount of people more. There's one that clearly gives a damn more than the other. One is literally one of my most popular, one of my most frequented tweets, um, you know, when a situation happens in the Republican Party or a situation happens in society that is clearly tied to Republicanism, the GOP cult, I just retweet it. And I say, pro-life is a scam. The GOP is a death cult. All I do is that. People, like, I'm known for, like, just retweeting something and just putting those two lines because I truly believe those two things are true, that the pro-life movement is a total scam because they are not pro-life. They are are pro just delivering that baby and then we don't give a fuck about you. And the GOP is truly a death cult. Like, they truly make decisions that lead people toward uh, 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 an unhealthy, horrible lifestyle. So all that to say, I'm fully bought in on, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm, I would say I'm a leftist progressive. Uh, so I'm beyond the Democratic Party even because even Joe Biden is, I'm like, dude, go further. You're not going far enough. 
How do we, is there a scenario, because again, you're in this world of politics way more than I am. I don't feel like in my lifetime, there will be a time when we have three, four, five parties like many other countries have. have. I mean, I think I could be totally wrong. I pulled this off the internet, but I, I read that, that the UK and Northern Ireland has 408 political parties, right? So there's tons there. I think there's five or six in Canada. I think we technically have five or seven here in the US, but two that only ever make, you know, two that only ever do something. Do you ever see a time and I do think so many of our problems, a lot of the, a lot of the, 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 the uh, anger and a lot of the things that are happening in society are because it is one against the other. There's no room for uh, getting around a table and dialoguing about these bigger issues. Do you see, are you hopeful that we could in our lifetime see four or five parties that make our election cycles and our election seasons and the way we do politics a little less crazy, a little less volatile, a little less, you know, just two dogs fighting against each other. Smarter people than me would be able to, to plot out that path. I will say right now, part of the reason we only have two parties is because the structure of ballot access is such that it's really hard for a third or fourth party to, to get the ballot line, to like literally get on the ballot. Sure. I mean, here in New York, like even Working Families Party, which is sort of a third party-esque uh, Democrat adjacent, but not Democrat um, uh, party, has what ha is able to exist because New York specifically has fusion voting where you can, the same candidate can be running on multiple party lines. And like I, as a Democrat, can go vote um, in a general election for the Working Families Party. And if that party is the same as the Democrat or that candidate is the same, it counts regardless of which party line. Many, many, if not most states do not have that process. So again, this is where you get into sort of the downsides of federalism <laughs> um, because each state and then each county and then often each city or town determines the, the ways in which these ballots are functioning. Um, it's gonna be really difficult, really, really difficult. You know, that is why for me, and I will say this, like this is the way that I have chosen to solve this problem. This is not ever needs to be everyone's solution. Like, Many different people are trying to approach this from many different angles, and all the more power to them. For me, I think the solution I have chosen to tackle with all of my time and energy is to ensure that within the party that I know mostly shares my values, as opposed to the one that really, really doesn't, the people who are running under that mantle are as good as they possibly can be, which is... I, I understand the argument that can be made that like you can't fix the broken system. And I'm like, but what if I tried? What if I tried? <laughs> yeah, that's a great that's a great point because there are you know for example Andrew Yang launching the the, the forward party. Uh, I like Andrew. I like a lot of things about. I like a lot of things that he stands for. Um, I'm 1,000% favor of a UBI. I think that's inevitable in the future and a lot of other things that he talks about. But as of late, Andrew Yang has been saying and doing certain things that have been, I, I think are very problematic. And I, and I do think I've heard him on podcasts and in conversations and other people pushing back on the viability of the Ford party ever actually doing something. And I go back and forth, Amanda, because I, I, I have, I mean, similar to my religious background, like the, the revolutionary part of me wants to go out and start something new, leave the old thing altogether and be like, yeah, you can't fix that. But then but then I see my friend a few years ago, 
take his house down to the studs. This was a, he bought this thing for a decent price. Uh, he said, I have this vision for this. And I'm like, that is not my thing. Like for, for, for a house, I'm like, I just want to buy something that I can move into. But I saw him take this thing literally down to the studs and rebuild something incredible. Rebuild a house that is so beautiful, but he used the foundation that was already there. He used the bones. The bones were good. The house was fucked. He fixed the house. Now it's this beautiful, beautiful house. I think in so many things in life, and I think you're right in politics, I would love to see four or five parties, six parties, seven parties, 10 parties. I don't know. There's a lot of different ways to attack all these problems, right? But I do think in our current situation, right, I've got one party that mostly stands with me and one that really, 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 really doesn't. So the obvious choice isn't to go, and, and I think I agree with you, the obvious choice isn't to go join Yang's forward party or someone else's, you know, Joe Walsh's, you know, party or whatever. It is to stick with the one that already has pervasive influence in society and partner with somebody like run for something and say, hey, young people, 40 and under, let us, you know, 600 and something, you know, elections so far. And there's thousands and thousands and thousands more to go. That seems like I think people should, if they feel the need to go start another party, fine, do it. I hope it works out for you. But like it or not, we are in this structure that we've been given. You and I didn't start. It's been around for hundreds of years. But here we are, the structure that has influence. It has a, a foundation that I don't think in our lifetime is going to go away. So why not try to change it from the inside? Why not try to take this thing down to the studs, as it were, and rebuild something that is very much pro-human and pro uh inclusivity, pro-diversity, pro-equity, pro-all of these things that right now I don't think our, even our Democratic Party is currently doing very well, but it is doing it. It is trying. There's so many candidates that I feel, not candidates, there are so many representatives that I think are so, so hopeful. Um, so I love that answer. Thank you for sharing that. Because I, again, some days I'm like, fuck it all. I'm out. I just want to go, I, I just want to be this independent person that fights from the outside. But we live in a world where you need you need this like deeply ingrained influence sometimes. You need to kind of attach yourself to something that doesn't look great. Again, which is why I still, you know, I still attach myself in my faith to something that is really, really messed up and that has a lot of baggage that comes along with it. But I believe that if I stay in it, I can help change it from within. I think that it certainly applies to this as well. And I think, you know, people talk about like the Democrats, the party. It's like, it's just people. It's just it's people. <laughs> it's just people showing up, going to meetings, being on email chains, speaking a little louder, talking over someone, making votes, writing resolutions. Like it's just people. And I think that can make it both really um, disheartening because it's like, ugh, sometimes people are so incompetent. But also it means that if you change out the people who are in the decision-making rooms or in the meetings or you make you know, one different leader over another, can really change the whole trajectory. I find that to be like deeply empowering. You know, I'm a, I'm a Peloton enthusiast and one of the instructors often gets to say like, we don't have to work out today. We don't have to do hard things. We get to, like we get to do hard things. And on the one hand, that's deeply cheesy. Um, but on the other, I do think it somewhat applies to this, you know, we don't, have to reform the Democratic Party. We don't have to save democracy. We get to. What an incredible opportunity. 
Yeah. I love that idea of, you know, we get to do hard things. I was talking to my wife real quickly and then we'll wrap up. I was talking to her the other night and I was talking about our, our children and how in some ways I think they're really resilient and really strong. And in some ways, like they're a little soft. Yeah. Not that I don't want, I'm not talking like macho, like, you know, hard, strong, like my kids feel, they cry and they listen to musicals and we have dance parties, like all of that. But they're a little soft in a few areas that I would love to see them toughen up in a little bit. And I've always been sort of like the other day, I have these like Chuck Taylors, right? These all-stars and they're not great for winter, but I wear them anyway. And they get water in them all the time, especially after like a snow, like I'm walking through slush and they're getting like wet. And I was like, babe, this is how my mind works. My mind is such that I will get water. I will appreciate the fact that my shoe is wet right now. I don't love it. I'm not loving that my shoe is wet, but I love that my shoe is wet in that I get to sit in a little bit of hardship because I know that it's that little thing of me not whining about my shoe getting wet is actually toughening my mind up. I'm actually yeah. getting a little more resilient. It's such a stupid small thing, but I truly believe that's happening to my mind. I can walk 30 minutes to my office with a wet shoe, and I think I'm a little bit stronger because of it in my mind and in my heart because I didn't choose to complain about that. Not that people can't go get boots. That's not what I'm saying. But I think to your point, yes, we don't – sure, it's cheesy, but yeah, we don't – we're not do, we don't we're not subjected to hard things. We get to do them. That makes us stronger. That makes our community stronger. And hopefully, for those that are living outside the U.S., I'm sorry we've talked mostly about U.S. stuff today. But wherever you live, you can get involved in these things. Ultimately, doing these hard things. I want to wrap up by saying, going back to what you said earlier about even though your candidates working nine to five, nine to nines, really trying hard, whether they win or lose, you've never heard someone say, "Man, I regret that. That was stupid. I shouldn't have done that." it makes us better to, to, to do something that is focused on our community that truly could have a lasting effect in our communities. I think you're doing incredible work. Um, I hope to continue to follow, run for something. If there's anything Let's Give a Damn could ever do to help support what you all are doing, I just love this um, so much. Runforsomething.net, mm -hmm. at runforsomething on social media, right? I think we're at Run for Something now on Instagram, but you right, can find yeah. It. If, if if you type in Run for Something, it'll pop up. You're Amanda at Amanda Littman on social media on Twitter at least. Um, anything else you want to share with people that's coming up? Anything you want them to get involved in other than get involved in this? Sign up to run for office. Um, if you prefer to read a guide, I wrote a book, Run for Something: A Real Talk Guide to Fixing the System Yourself. Available wherever you get your books. Maybe you take it out from the library. Love that. Um, the Run for Something podcast archives are all up. You can listen to hours and hours of conversations with folks. Um, I love hearing from people who either read or listen and tell me that those inspired them to run for office. It's just, it's the best. Um, make a donation if you can. Every dollar goes a really long way towards this work. And know that you're not going to be able to solve every problem. And you're not going to be able to fund our whole budget. And you're not going to be able to do the whole thing. But that putting your name on the ballot putting a dollar in into the run for something, you know, resources, you know, whatever it is, that small thing is so, so powerful. It's so powerful. So thank you for doing it, whatever it is you decide to do. Amazing. That's a great way to end. Amanda, thank you so much. You're amazing. Thanks for having me. Dear friends and damn givers, that is it for today. Thank you for showing up. Thank you for spending some time with us this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. 
Please share this episode with a friend. Consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please show up next week. We have many more incredible conversations coming your way each and every week. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. And a reminder, you can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.